Welcome to the Some of It All Unlearning Podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're diving into the book Unlearning, Changing Your Beliefs and Your Classroom with UDL by Allison Posey and Katie Novak. Transcripts to our podcasts are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we are diving into Chapter 5, Relight the Pilot Light to Unleash expert learners. Yeah, let's dive in, Audrey. You know, um, to start off the chapter, did you notice there was a baking example, like an analogy, right? Yes. And um, you know, that baking analogy took me back to that, um, the visual that we've seen so many times about uh, the idea of equity versus equality. Um, Do you know the visual I'm talking about? Totally. Where they have the kids that are trying to watch the ball game Mm -hmm. and uh, they try to make it equitable, but then the difference being, uh, how would we situate, uh, what would what we would give those students to make it so it's equitable versus just equal? Um, and so uh, as I was reading this baking example, it, it, it made me go back to that. And you know what made me think of Audrey is that one of our colleagues would always say in those examples, like, why aren't they just in the game? Like, mm. shouldn't they be fully participating in the game itself? And I always thought that was an interesting um, thought. And then here we are reading this chapter. And guess what? The students, the children in this example, they're actually baking the cookies. So I was like, hey, that's just like what one of our colleagues was talking about. Exactly what I was thinking. It's it's really getting the kids in there doing the work. So the authors say in the sketch, as they call it, or the example that the goal in the sketch is that all the learners will be able to bake a delicious cookie that they will eat for a snack. So it's definitely in there baking something that they're able to consume when they finish. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, in this part of the chapter, Audrey, it really highlighted one of the big ahas that I had, oh, in the last couple of years about UDL. And that this idea that we're going to focus to reduce the barriers in the design of the environment and empower learners to use the tools they need to reach the goal itself. So I I know that for me, that was a big aha because when I first learned about UDL, it was about reducing barriers, but I didn't think about reducing barriers toward the goal. It was more of just like, I'm gonna reduce barriers for a particular activity. So for example, in math class, I might say, I'm gonna reduce barriers for kids to use manipulatives. I'm gonna make sure that they they can access them and there's no barriers. Or I'm going to make sure there's barriers reduced for kids to get into a math conversation. Um, but I, and those are all important things and we should pay attention to those, but it's so different than what is the goal of the math lesson. And let me think about the barriers toward the goal, not just barriers to any of the individual pieces of the lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really important point. And I think that, I think that's the piece that's easiest to forget. So as soon as we get into the work, I think it's super easy to get back into using the the work of UDL to reduce barriers again. And we totally forget and lose sight of the goal. So I think, I think what you brought up is a really, really important point. Um, you know, one of the things that um, I appreciate and I always appreciate is a really good analogy. That's true. Um, you know me and people who listen to the podcast over time know that I have my share of analogies I like to share. Um, this one tripped me up a little bit at the end though, because um, 
And there was a part where like they're talking about using UDL to um, both reduce barriers like you're talking about and then provide options. And they talked about providing the option of like other students might prefer to try a baking technique using a digital simulation. And I got stuck because I'm like, how is that actually accomplishing the goal? Right. Like, mm -hmm. did we lose, did we lose sight? Like you were just talking about, did we lose sight of the goal is actually for the students, do you remember, to eat the cookie for snack, right? Like that poor child is going to be really sad when the digital simulation ends and everyone else is eating like snack and has gooiness all over their fingers and mouth. And that kid's like staring at the computer screen, you know? Yeah, I guess it, it for me, it would only work if that was just to help them learn the technique and then they would still do it though, right? Like it, yes. it would have to be like that, right? Yes, I'm 100% with you. So I feel like either that was missing in the explanation or I'm missing in my understanding. And I appreciate you saying that. Like, I don't think we have to go from step zero to step 100. You know, like it's not like you start and you must accomplish the goal in the next step. But if we lose sight of the goal and we start providing options and opportunities, like you were saying, and we forget what the goal is, all of a sudden we're going to end up with kids who are eating cookies and other kids <laughs> who are staring at a screen without any cookies to eat for snack, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair point. And Audrey, I, I just think this is such an important point for our listeners. If you're planning math lessons, give it a try. Think about yeah. like the barriers toward the goal versus barriers toward the math task that you're giving. So I throw that out there for folks to, to try on. Um, and Audrey, as I was uh, going through the chapter on the top of page 56, there was a quote that jumped out at me. It was, we want students to become more strategic and goal directed in their pursuits. So again, back to this idea of goals. And uh, as I was thinking about like how this applies to math, as we've been doing as we go through this season, I, I, a quote from Peter Lilliedahl came to mind because it's a quote I've been using a lot lately as I've been working with educators. And the quote is, Problem solving is what you do when you don't know what to do. And so I'm thinking of that quote because I think it's just such a wonderful way to uh, describe problem solving and what we want to have happen with our students. And then, it, Audrey, at first, though, I sort of stopped for a second. I said, wait a second. I don't know if that fits with the quote that I read from the book. You mm. know, if you're goal directed, you know where you're going. You know everything that's happening. Well. But now I just read a quote that says, problem something what you do when you don't know what to do. So do you see how I sort of like, I yeah. had a moment where I was like, wait a second, do these two ideas come together? But actually, I think they do. So um, here, here's what I'm thinking about. Um, you know, if the problem is clear that we give students, the task, the, the investigation, if, they, if they're clear about what they're trying to find out, but the means of getting there is not clear, the means are flexible, therefore, because I haven't told you the path to take. So actually, the means is flexible. And the more our students have experiences with them trying to need to figure something out, that's where I think it works out nicely because they have a clear idea of the goal of what they're trying to figure out in that problem. But they have that flexibility within that, which is, I think, what we want in UDL. And they will develop their ability to be strategic in their solutions as they get more opportunities to not know what they're supposed to do and have to figure that out. So I don't know if that quite fits, but I'm throwing it out there, Audrey. What are you thinking? Yeah. So let me see if I'm hearing you correctly. If I'm problem solving, it's what I do when I don't know what to do. 
but the goal of problem solving is to solve the problem, right? So, and if the problem is clear to me, if I if I understand, if I understand the task, yes, then I'm looking for a solution to that, right? So, the means are then flexible. I can get there in a variety of ways per both what UDL and Peter Logadal talk about problem solving to be. Um, but the goal is clear because at the end of the day or at the end of the task or at the end of the time, I'm looking for a solution to that problem solving. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I think, yes. I think that resonates. I think that makes some sense to me. I'm, I'm going to be an interesting thing to kind of keep exploring because I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, I, don't, I, agree. I don't know that people play in the land of UDL with a lot of the math that we talk about in classes right now. Like they, oh. they've thought about it in the context of more traditional math classes. And so I think it's, it's worthy of us grappling with, okay, if we're talking about kids really problem solving in math, and we're talking about UDL as our primary strategy for equitable instruction, like what does that look and sound like when we put those two together? So I appreciate yeah. you bringing that up. Sure. Um, you know, one quote that stood out to me in the chapter was talking about um, uh, this. It said, the remarkable transition is that when we focus on removing the barriers, we stop labeling the students and start opening up the conversation that can lead to the discovery of other strategies or means to reduce the barriers. And I really like that. I underlined it. I thought about it. I wrote some notes to myself in the margins. And I think that there's some truth to the fact that we have to, we have to stop ourselves from this ongoing labeling process that our educational system is fraught with, right? In order to get to the space of authentically brainstorming and coming up with potential opportunities that help us navigate these barriers. So um, I think otherwise we get stuck in the labeling stage and never get back to the design stage. Yeah, Audrey, labels are just so fixed in in mathematics. It's just, it is, it's a, it's a, it is, an ongoing struggle to uh, reduce the use of labels. But you know what I have to say as I was reading this section, Audrey, is like, I'm not sure that the phrase high expectations sort of like takes care of that. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I've, I've never run into a teacher as I've been in conversations where they say, you know, actually I have low expectations mm -hmm. for my students. <laughs> you know, I, haven't, yeah. I haven't been in a conversation like that. I don't know, have you? Um, no. no. Um, so I'm not sure the phrase means anything anymore. And, and you know, as the authors bring up labels, um, I'm not sure that those two things get, get separated. So I'll, I'll give an example, Audrey. So here's, try, let's try this on. So I I could see somebody saying, I could, I could hear it right now. They might say, I have high expectations for my low math students, <laughs> right? And like- now we're using high expectations mm -hmm. and a deficit label in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. So um, I, 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 I appreciate the spirit of what the authors are bringing up. Um, I just, uh, I think that in mathematics, we have some labels that we just need to shed. And um, I think we're going to need more than saying high expectations to, to shed those labels. That, that's fair. That's completely fair. I think, I think for what it's worth, this chapter has um, a recap of the Pygmalion in Education study, which um, if you haven't read about it, I know we've mentioned it in quick passing in at least another episode or two, probably from another season. At this point, I'm losing track um, of, um, of the study. But this idea of what, what happens uh, from our unconscious bias as teachers 
to what comes out in play in the classroom is something they can track and trace um, with really damaging effects on students, even though there's no intent to do so. So I don't even have to attach the label low student to my students, which I appreciate you saying, Mark, like labels are a problem, but attached with that label or even without the label, if I have a low expectation for my students, that um, that is just the first of three quick steps down a track towards future performance that will then be kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy for lack of a better term. Like mm-hmm. I have low expectations for some students, so I don't realize I start treating them in different ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's right. the crazy thing is like those are almost imperceptible. But when you have cameras watching, when you have data yeah. trackers in the room, you can see it. Yeah. You can count it. Right. And then all of a sudden, those ways of treating those students differently translates into a treatment that influences how students feel about themselves and how they then perform in class. And so I think with or without the label, the low expectations is a problem. It's just a problem. And it's something we have to continue to think about um, and work through. And and you're right. I've never heard a single teacher say I have low expectations for my students. But I have heard teachers say things like my students can't. Yeah, for sure. And so I think at some point in time, we have to realize that is a low expectation. Yeah. Right. And so. What's hard is like we are stuck in this space of trying to communicate in that moment. I asked a student to do something and they weren't able to. That might be true data, right? Like they couldn't do it yet. And that's the power of yet that people talk about. (laughs) But as soon as I say my students can't, it's that label that feels like it's an expectation that's going to predict future performance because I'm going to start to treat them that way. And it's going to predict how the student then acts because of how I treat them. Anyways, I've talked enough about that. I think it's something we have to be really cognizant of, something that all of us need to keep working at and be really forefront of our minds. Yeah, yeah, for sure, Audrey. Really really well said. And, you know, you touched upon this idea of past performance. I think just to add one more piece to it around mathematics is that, you know, around expectations is we have this, this notion that these traditional assessment practices that we use in these different digital platforms that we might use uh, as we receive students into our class each year, we 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 look at this so-called past performance, however we want to think about defining that. And we use that as a predictor, a predictor of future success. As if some some test is going to tell me how you did at some other time, some other place, and I'm going to predict that's how you that's your potential. That's how you could go in the future. And, and a lot of mathematics instruction year after year is, is based on, on that model. And so um, uh, I just think these are things, things you mentioned uh, and this idea of how we think about assessment um, are just things that are wrapped up in that whole expectation uh, model. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, the chapter also had some interesting things to say about student autonomy. Do you mind going there for a minute? Tell me what you thought about the student autonomy section of the chapter. No, no, I'd be happy to, Audrey. Um, You know what really caught my attention in that section 
is like wondering what the idea of co-design might look like in math class. Um, You know, so I started going there and thinking about like, okay, let's think about this in math class because co-design in math class, they don't go together. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's like the last content area anybody would sort of jump on that train, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So here's what I was wondering. I was wondering if the co-designing could actually be in the solution paths that are created by students. Um, So let's play that out for a second, okay? So Mm -hmm. as a teacher, if I provide high quality tasks that are designed by my student or for my students, excuse me, to bump into important mathematical ideas, what might happen or what should happen, and I think what you and I would intend to have happen in our lessons is that my students would design their own solution paths which actually co-designs the shared thinking in that final stage of the lesson, what we might call the summarize or the consolidation. And so um, I'm just thinking that that, that's where like the co-designing can happen because that what happens with what kids come up with in their solutions, those become the part of the lesson, which is so critical at the end where the, where the teacher pulls all the math ideas together Hmm. and Traditionally, the teacher would just do that on their own, but the kids are actually co-designing that um, with with their solutions and their thinking. Because without student thinking, like let's consider that I as the teacher, I'm the only designer. And not only that, I'm the only authority mm-hmm. of the mathematics. So student thinking provides that co-design. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I came up with there. Yeah, I really love that, Mark. Um... You know, the questions around where the power is centralized and who's controlling the learning really caught my attention in that section. Um, I think they're great questions for our classrooms. And for the people who are leaders listening in, I think they're great questions for our professional development or professional learning. You know, I think I think about things like um, this time of year, uh, Making Math Moments offers virtual PD hmm. for teachers. And they get like, I don't know, somewhere between like 10 and 15,000 teachers to attend on a weekend, right? Um, And part of why I think that happens is I think it happens because teachers are in control of what they're learning. I think the power is centralized at the teacher, at the personal level, the student in this case, the person who is the, the learner has the power. They get to control the learning. They get to opt in to the class, they get to leave the class. If it's not an interesting class, they get to walk out essentially of the virtual class. I think I think sometimes we forget that the power of that matters and that people flock to that. So I'm curious about it, like as you described, both in the cases of students, and I'm also super curious about how we leverage that um, in the cases uh, for teachers. Um, yeah, I, I think that's, I just want to say, Audrey, real quick, that I think that that's a great example. And I think that, you know, a lot of us are starting to try to rethink conferences, right? Like, think mm-hmm. about, like, how do we have these conference-type professional le- learning settings? And I like the example that you gave because um, we need to center, you know, the consumer, the the person who's at the center of that learning more. And I, I think that, I'm not sure we always do that when we plan conferences. Appreciate that. Well, now that I'm doing more of that, I'll think about that, Mark. Thanks for thanks for the note. <laughs> the note. Cool. Um, so before we wrap up today, 
Um, the authors included a math example in this in this section, um, which always surprises me a little bit when there's a math example. It makes me both a little nervous um, and a little excited um, because I'm never really sure what's going to happen. Do you feel the same way? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I see. I see it. I. It's like I see it coming, right? Like yeah. I start reading. I'm like, oh, and then I kind of hold my breath a little bit. I have to be I honest. Know. <laughs> I know. I, I. It's the same feeling I have when someone asks me what I do for a living in a public oh, place. Right. You know, yeah. like it's the same like moment <laughs> of like, do I tell you for real or do I just like not really tell you? Um, well, that's anyways. funny, Audrey, because I usually say how much time do I have? Is I. I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna use that next time. Yeah. Um. Well, so here, there's an example in this section. And in this one, there's a lot left unsaid. So I'm just going to preface it with like, it's, I don't know, maybe six lines of text, which is trying to describe what happened in like, it sounds like several hours of like meeting and class instruction. Sure. sure. So there's a lot not said there or shrunken into um, very short sentences. Um but I just know if I had a chance to talk to Brian, who is the person in the teacher role in this mm-hmm. situation, yeah. I have a lot I'm super curious about and I want to ask questions about you. How about you? Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think that's fair. And I think that, you know, whenever we read a vignette, especially one that's very short like this, um, you know, that's all we have to go on. I mean, we don't we don't know what else happened. You, you said it very well, um, but it did it did just uh, provide some questions for me. Yeah. So. so- uh Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So, you know, there was a, a a student that was mentioned in the example. I think you you noticed that. And, and um, what ended up happening is the student that was um, described as a very proficient student in that class, mm-hmm. um, that student was invited in to the idea of the planning session. So, again, what we've been talking about for the last little while about like this idea of students being part of the co-designing. Right. So pretty cool. Um, and then, uh, the idea of him being part of that and being part of like presenting the information to his classmates. Um, and, but the question that I had that I was left with there, Audrey was like, did we just do a switch out? Mm -hmm. Did we, did we get like a mini me stage on the stage versus the teacher stage on the stage? And, and I mean, I'm sure that was probably more effective in this example, or at least I, I'm inferring it was, um, than it being the teacher. But, um, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I just wasn't sure about that. Uh, well, Mark, you're the one who says, don't say anything a kid can say. So you swap out a teacher for a student. Yeah, I do Feels say like that. Up the I game once, but I'm, I'm with you. I think, um, you know, we've talked about this before around this idea of UDL is that what we don't want to do is we don't want UDL to become a band-aid for what's wrong with traditional math instructional practices. Um, so in this case, Walter, the student you're talking about, who becomes kind of the teacher or the co-designer of yeah, the, of the yeah. lesson, um, is described as like an advanced student. And so what it sounds like to me is that, and the, again, reading between the lines, yeah. I don't know for yeah. sure. Yeah. It sounds like we don't know how to design for the margins. We don't know how to design extensions of deeper learning for students that are more in depth in uh, ways that help students who are already understanding some stuff when their peers aren't, right? And so instead of doing that, we make them the class tutor. Hmm. Um, And this practice of making an advanced student the class tutor 
has been going on for decades. Like this is not a UDL practice. This is like, this is something that's done in classrooms all the time. The co-designing part is different, um, but it's not an equitable practice and it doesn't address actually student autonomy for anyone else in the class Hmm. or student agency for anyone else in the class. And so those are things that I get worried about um, when we highlight this as the example. And so, again, maybe lines are missing or more explanation could be helpful here. Um, but I think it's worthy to point out uh, as we think about this math example. Yeah, fair points, Audrey. You know, hey, you know, maybe this is back to the baking cookies. Let's go all hmm. the way back to the end of the chapter, right? Um, remember in the last representation of the baking cookies sequence, each kid is participating in baking the cookies. Like they're making the cookies or baking cookies. So like the way I think we would call that in a math lesson is kids are doing mathematics where each and every student is making meaning for themselves about the mathematics versus having a star student making the meaning for them. I think those two things are fundamentally different. If me making meaning and making understanding around something versus somebody coming up with some, some other ways to teach me. You know what I mean? Orally. So I think that's like the litmus test in this case, or the cookie test in this case is like, <laughs> are all the kids making meaning themselves? And if so, then we've done it. We've figured out how to increase student autonomy, right? We've done it. We've figured out how to create options and opportunities for kids. And if it isn't happening, then maybe we're using UDL as a band-aid for antiquated practices and we need to reconsider what we're doing. Sure. Thanks, Audrey. Folks, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about chapter six, take action. Until then, what will you unlearn?